I'd like to read these words from Isaiah chapter 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by my hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Father, we're so grateful that you are the one who knows the end from the beginning. You are the author of life, the author of history, the creator of heaven and earth. And Father, we know that our hope springs from your being, from the life and death of Jesus Christ. We draw not only hope, but assurance of eternal life in your presence. Father, we're so grateful that you continue to work with us, even though we're in a a world that seems to be spiraling downward to, to destruction. We know, Lord, that you hold all things in your hands and uh, things will not go beyond the limits that you have set and that you will keep us for your purpose. Even in the midst of turmoil, we can have calm and peace in our hearts and our lives can reflect the radiance of the glory of Christ to those that live around us, to those, Lord, that still live in darkness. I pray that our time here today will be blessed of you, that you will not only give us good fellowship, but good understanding of your word and, and a good time of, of focused prayer. And Father, we trust that you will bless as your word is proclaimed uh, during the second service and throughout the Sunday school, throughout the city of Reading and around the world. Father, bless. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, today we're going to begin a little intermediate study. We just completed the book of 2 Samuel. And before we plunge into 1 and 2 Kings, which, by the way, will cover most of the rest of the history of ancient Israel, with the exception, of course, of Ezra and Nehemiah, which kind of wrap it up before, we, before you go into what is called the 400 silent years. And because I want to uh, update uh, our study with technology, and I'm going to be putting First Kings on PowerPoint, while I do that, I'm going to be, while I keep working on that to try to get it going here, we're going to uh, do a little study which I've entitled Israel Through the Millennia. It's a bit of a review for those of you who have been with us since Genesis. But it's more than that because what we're going to do is kind of look at uh, the country of Israel and the people who have been important to it for over the 4,000 years between Abraham and the present day. So in order to do that, I've backed up and uh, going to go back to the book of Genesis. We're not going to start with the first verse or anything like that. <laughs> but, but we'll read a few passages here and there uh, through the book of Genesis uh, this morning. In the ninth chapter, the 17th verse, we have record of the last words that God was to speak to any human being for a period of 2,000 years. 
this was right after the great flood. And God gave a sign. You remember to Noah, the sign of the rainbow. And these are the words from Genesis 9.17. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now you look at that and you search down through and you'll discover that there's no biblical record of God speaking directly to another human being until he speaks to Abram. From that point on, you don't have God speaking directly to anyone until he speaks to Abram. You do have a generic statement where God in the 11th chapter speaks generally saying, I'm going to go down and confound the languages. And he says, we are going to go down. So we think of that as a conversation amongst the Trinity to, uh, to deal with that particular crisis. And so here we have the centuries of the post-flood era where you have the reconstruction of civilization going on and seemingly out of the blue. Really, it seems to be out of the blue that God suddenly speaks to this man named Abraham. So if you look in the 12th chapter of Genesis, and, and this, of course, is a very profound uh, passage along with a couple of others in the early chapters of Genesis having to do with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, when we studied Genesis, we spent a bit of time. You probably don't remember if you were here, because that was a decade ago. <laughs> Looking at the overall meaning of, of that particular passage, and the fact it still applies today. In, in terms of the blessing that has come through the nation of Israel, obviously prim primarily in the Messiah, and the fact that those who curse the nation of Israel or the people, no matter whether we're talking about believing Jews or not, there, there is a, a fulfillment of this promise, as we've seen in all of the countries that have had pogroms and uh, attacks on, on the Jewish people have suffered great tragedy and great pain. And so often it's been done in the name of Jesus, you know. And when the Spanish kicked out the Jews and the English kicked out the Jews and, of course, uh, the Russians kicked out the Jews and, and you see part of that in, in, the, in the popular movie Fiddler on the Roof and the, and the issues that went on there. All of those countries suffered tremendous decline and, and tragedy. Uh, is it a result of this? Well, I think at least in part it is. By the time of Abram, the memory of the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, and the great flood that destroyed it, which had occurred at least 3,000 years. Now, we're not going to get into that debate because there's a lot of talk about when was the great flood. But at least 3,000 years before Abram was the great flood. That by the time of Abram, the whole story had degenerated to nothing really much more than virtual mythology. And you see this most aptly presented in what is called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was produced during the, wor during the world of the Sumerians. And, and there are several tablets. And in the 11th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic, there's this story of this individual who is chosen by the gods to survive a great flood and, and with his family and so forth. And so sort of a Noah-like creature. 
And uh, Gilgamesh, as far as we know, was probably a real person who lived uh, about 25, 26, 2700 BC, we don't know exactly when, who uh, is thought to have been a king of one of the city-states in Mesopotamia. And uh, he is sort of the lead character through this whole epic of creation and flood and search for eternal life and all the other kinds of things that are depicted very primitive, primitively, of course. What, what the Gilgamesh epic indicates is that simple human memory of an event degenerates over the millennia and becomes full of things that couldn't possibly have been true. And that's why God had to give to Moses a true vision of what really happened so that Moses could record it accurately because Moses couldn't remember it. Obviously, he was even later in time, the real event. And so it was by revelation that Moses was able to record what we have in the book of Genesis concerning the great flood. Genesis chapter 11, verse 31 states that Abram's father Terah moved from Ur of Sumer, or what is called Ur of the Chaldees, because later on it would be in uh, the region called Chaldea, to a place called Haran in Paden Aram. Now all of that's familiar to you if you were with us in the study of Genesis. If not, it may seem a little strange to you. Inside this red line here was the uh, ancient uh, country of Sumer, S-U-M-E-R. This was a civilization that existed inside basically this area here, the southern part of modern-day Iraq, from about 4000 to 2000 BC. It is the oldest civilization of the human race. Uh, that we have record of. Used to be thought that the Egyptians were the oldest, but the Sumerians predate the Egyptians by a few hundred years. Way down the southern part is the, was the ancient city of Ur, U-R. Part of the relics from Ur were in the museum in, in Baghdad that everybody got so upset about being ransacked uh, there. Uh, because, you know, Ur is an ancient city, one of the oldest cities in human history. And for anything from that city to be lost, that's, you know, uh, tragic. But anyway, Ur was way down here in southern Sumer. You see the word Sumer right here. Sumer, in terms of territory, Sumer and Babylonia are roughly the same. This also will later in time be called Babylonia. But for 2,000 years, it's called Sumer. And so here is Ur down here. And so Terra migrates roughly along this yellow line here. We don't know exactly how the migration took place, but certainly up the Euphrates River here, and then up to uh, the city of Haran up here, which is sort of at the top of the Fertile Crescent. This area right through here is shaped sort of like a crescent, almost like a horseshoe. And a 19th century British historian looking at on the map called this the Fertile Crescent. And so the term Fertile Crescent has kind of been stuck uh, to this part of the world ever since. Uh, this is a vast desert in here. So you travel up the river Euphrates, across through the grassy plains up here, then down the coastal route here into the river valley of Egypt. And so that was the line of trade that existed uh, at that particular time. And so Terah moves his family from Ur up here to Haran. Haran, the word Haran means crossroads. So sort of the crossroads of the routes that came through this particular area. Haran is in today, well, well was then in what was called Paden Aram, the same as Aram Naharim, uh, Aram between the rivers, the fields, the land of Aram. 
Aram is another name for Arameans, which we would know as Syrians. Okay? So he lives up here in what is today Syria. Us, not Assyria, just Syria. The journey from Ur to Haran would have been about a 750 mile journey by the route that would have been taken uh, in those days. There was no Air Iraq, you know, to, to make the flight, and so you go by the longer route. This trip probably occurred in the 20th century before Christ. In other words, about 4,000 years ago that this journey was made. Probably before the very last kingdom of the Sumerians collapsed. This whole area here was controlled by the city of Ur at that time. It was the greatest city. Other cities, of course, that are famous in this area are Erdu and Rek and Larsa and Lagash and Isin, Nippur, all, all these cities you see in here, including Babylon, were also major Sumerian cities. But Ur was the queen city at this time. From about 2050, no, about 2060 to 1950 BC, a little over 100 years, what was called the Third Dynasty of Ur uh, ruled this whole area in here. So out of that last glorious moment of the Sumerian peoples comes this family of people who are not Sumerians. Abraham's family is Semitic. They're, they're not Sumerians. Sumerians are Indo-European as far as we can tell. Nobody really knows the origin of these people or, or really what their language uh, was like other than what we have in the, what's called the cuneiform script. They, they developed the very first form of writing, which was called cuneiform. You take little wooden stylus and you press uh, indentations into clay and, and you produce these um, phonograms. And so this particular area had people living in it who were not Sumerians, such as the family of Shem. Remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons of Noah. And uh, the word Semitic comes from Shem, descendants of Shem. Shemites become Semites. And you have the term Semitic, uh, which is used for them. There, this particular area, after about 1960 BC, well, the, the 1950 BC or so, uh, it collapses, it's invaded by outsiders, the Sumerians disappear. I mean, they totally disappear. They so totally disappear that it was believed until the late 19th and early 20th century of our time that the oldest people in this area were the Babylonians. And yet the Babylonians don't come into significance until 1900 BC. And the Sumerians had been there 2,000 years before that. But archaeologists uncovered a civilization that had been totally lost. The Babylonians so absorbed everything Sumerian that it looked like it began with them. Like, for example, why do we have 360 degrees in a circle? Well, it's because of what the Babylonians had, you know? And that's roughly because there's 360, well, we know 365 days in a year. And so that's how we end up with a 360 degree degrees in a circle. The circle can have however many degrees you want in it. You know, that's totally arbitrary. But we've all agreed to 360. I hope nobody changes it now because you've noticed how well the metric system has taken over in this country, haven't you? <laughs> they try to start changing kilometers on the signs, or as they call it in Europe, kilometers, you know, gallons uh, into liters and all that stuff. But it just didn't take, did it? <laughs> Hasn't yet, anyway. What, what is interesting is that when this will collapse, 
A dynasty will be established here at Babylon. The people who rule this area are called the Amorites. You've seen that word a lot in, in the Old Testament, Amorite. It's a Sumerian word meaning Westerner. Somebody from the West was an Amorite. So Abraham and his family were actually Amorites in that sense of the word. And, and so the, third, the, uh, the old Babylonian dynasty, the dynasty of the Amorites, would be established and roughly cover that same area right there. And we don't know much about them except, of course, they carried on everything that was Sumerian and, and they had the greatest ruler of the ancient world whose name was Hammurabi, who wrote a law code, which we still have. You know, the, it was carved in cuneiform on, on um, rock and uh, we still have copies of the, of the famous code of Hammurabi, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind of law code. And skeptics will tell you that's where Moses got the idea for writing this, the kind of law that you have in the Torah. He got it from, from Hammurabi. I don't think so. Because if you read Hammurabi's code, it's a lot worse uh, than, uh, than the code that God gave to Moses. So, Amorites are Westerners. They are Semitic. Now, the question is, since, as far as we know from the record, God was silent for the two and a half millennia or so between the time of Shem and the time of Abram, how did the knowledge of God, how was the knowledge of God perpetuated? Or was it perpetuated? Did the people in between Shem and Abram know God? Was it that, you know, Shem knew God and he talked to his son about God and then his son talked a little bit about, and you know how it goes through the generations that kind of peters out after a while? Did, a, did God suddenly speak to Abram out of the blue? Does the 12th chapter of Genesis, where we find God finally speaking to another human being again, is that the first time God literally spoke to anybody in 2,000 or 3,000 years? We don't know. This is the only record we have. And what did Abram know about God before he spoke to him? Because he says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Did he say, who are you, <laughs> Lord? What is the Lord? I mean, who are you? Why are you telling me this? Why should I follow you? We don't have any of that uh, terminology. Although if you've seen some of the secular movies made on, on this story, they do include all that. Huh? Who are you? You know, kind of idea. Did God literally speak to Abram out of the blue? Well, you know, it's hard to believe that that is true. Somehow we have a sense, I think, that Abram knew of Yahweh, uh, of God. And uh, now God is literally speaking to him and telling him what to do. Wh whatever is the case, at 75 years of age, he is told by God to leave Haran. How long have they been at Haran? Well, we don't really know. But for a while, Terah led his family up here and Abram was one of his sons. And, and then God calls Abram to leave Haran and to go to Canaan. And so Abram listens to the word of God and by faith, and this is emphasized both in Genesis and in later scripture, by faith Abram goes forth to a land he doesn't know in obedience to this word from, from God. He takes with him Lot, his nephew, and this, this family. And he settles in Canaan. Now certainly Abram had heard of Canaan, the land, because he lived in Haran, Crossroads City here, 
where this, this tra these travelers are constantly going back and forth. So travelers coming this way or going that way would, would comment certainly about Canaan. So we heard of Canaan, the land. But because Canaan itself was of no great consequence, he probably knew little about the land other than the general direction. It's south. At that time, Canaan was an ill-defined strip of land between the Assyrian desert and the Mediterranean Sea. It was made up of petty principalities of very modestly wealthy kings. When I say that, emphasize the modestly. I mean, there was no great source of wealth in Canaan. I mean, people have all kinds of weird ideas. You may remember that about 20, 25 years ago, there were some people who, who took literally the passage that said in the land of Asher, oil would spring forth. And so they went over there and they put millions of dollars in the drilling in that part of Israel, trying to come up with oil. When, of course, the oil is referring to, referred to as olive oil, not petroleum. You know. The southern border of Canaan uh, is kind of lost into the, the northern Sinai deserts before you end up over here in Egypt. The northern border of Canaan kind of butts up against the Assyrian, I mean the Syrian uh, territories up here in, in the north. And so you just kind of have borders that are not clear. They just kind of a transition because there was no state of Canaan with a capital city and a government. It was just a bunch of little city-states and roving tribes living in this territory with no overseeing government except when somebody came and conquered them, like maybe the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians or later in time the Hittites who would conquer the area. Otherwise, there was no, nothing to hold the land together as, as, a, as a unit. So it's, it's an ideal land for Abraham to move into, or Abram as he was still called that time, because there's empty land, or there's open land at least, and he's got as much right to live there as, as anybody else. So we're talking about an area that averages, if you start out here on the edge of the Syrian desert, where it starts to pick up a little bit of uh, moisture, this is elevated in here. You're up about three to 4,000 feet in elevation, so the air masses that come in off the Mediterranean, they, they first precipitate here, drop rain and a little bit of snow, on this range, the mountains of Ephraim and Judah, then you have this gorge in between of the Jordan River, and then this is a little bit higher here. So you get a little bit more precipitation here, and then you have the rain shadow off into the, into the desert here. And, and so right about, mm, right along here, it begins to become habitable, farmable or at least grazable. And so from here to the Mediterranean, it averages about 80, 80 miles. And if you go from uh, maybe Dan or slightly north of that to uh, Beersheba or down in the Negev here, you're, you're talking about maybe 200 miles the other way. So 80 miles by 200 miles. You multiply that 16,000 square miles. One-tenth the area of the state of California. The land of Canaan, which later would be known as Israel or Judah, and for the last 2,000 years has been known as Palestine, was named after the father of the Canaanite peoples. I'd like to read from Genesis, the 10th chapter. First reading, the sixth verse. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Okay. Now, if those sound like country names, hey, they are, you know. Cush becomes what we know as Sudan, Ethiopia area. Mizraim, Egypt, Put, 
That's usually considered to be Cyrene or the Libyan area over that way. And Canaan. Now read down in verse 15. And Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. Now those are all ites that lived roughly in the area of Canaan. Okay? Names of different tribes or peoples all descended from Ham through Canaan. So Canaan fathered all these tribes. And so when Abram came into the land, it was inhabited by the descendants of this man Canaan, who was the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. Right? Right. So in a way, you could say they were all really, really distant cousins of Abram. In that you and I are all really, really distant cousins. <laughs> through Adam and Eve, and then later through Noah and his wife, Mrs. Noah. You ever notice how the human race started out, and it went like this, and then suddenly went all the way back in, you know? Like back in the uh, 1800s when the women wore those corsets that cinched them down to a waist this big around, you know? Uh, it's kind of like the human race, back down to just eight people. And then from there, back out to us. So Abram, by God's direction, now think about this for a minute. He didn't have a pastor to go to to get counsel. He didn't have a psychologist, a Christian psychologist to run to to help him to see if, if he's hearing voices because there's something wrong with him or, you know, God is really speaking. He simply, by faith, heard the word of the Lord and went. I, when I say simply, I, I probably shouldn't use the word simply. It was probably a whole lot more complex if you'd have been in Abram's sandals. I think, oh, should I go? Should I not go? Do I really want to do this? Is, whoa, you know. No scripture to confirm it by. No scripture had been written. Think about it. I think it's one of the reasons why when you read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, some of those people are given such high acclaim, even Samson. Because they had so much less than we have to confirm their faith and to go on. We have as much, we have the fullness of God's revelation. As much as he's going to give the human race in this condition has been given. So we have all that light to go by. So we have much less excuse when God says to go to Canaan and we don't go. I'm not urging anybody to go to Canaan right now. It's pretty disruptive over there right now. But probably wasn't a whole lot better in the day of Abram except for they didn't have any explosives. So he went from Haran. Now this map puts a yellow line here saying that he went to Tadmor and then probably through Damascus and in. Well, maybe. We don't really know how he went. Uh, he might have gone further to the southwest and, and gone through Aleppo and some of the other cities, Hamath and on down. However it was, he migrated from Haran down into the land of Canaan to Shechem, which is right here. He went to Shechem. God spoke to him again at that point and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And Abram marked the territory by building altars at Shechem and then also at Bethel. Shechem is right here. 
It's a small site between the mountains of Ebal and Gerizim, right here. And then he went south to Bethel. And there at Bethel, which means the house of God, he built another altar. And this will be a very important place to Israel because Jacob, for example, will meet God twice at Bethel, both going and coming, leaving the land and coming back into the land. We'll meet God at this same place. And then after that, Abram will move down into the Negev, down here. That word means south. It's kind of a step land, a grassy land down there. The city that marks the northern edge is Beersheba. Uh, the city that marks the southern edge, which is off the map, is Kadesh Barnea. In between here, those two cities, you have this, this region called the south, Negev. It's, it's great land for people who primarily herd animals, which Abraham, of course, was a herdsman. We all know that he had a real bit of a disastrous foray down into Egypt. And then after that, he returned to the Negev. At that point, he and his nephew Lot, who had apparently been traveling with him all this particular time, had a run-in because their herds were too large to be kept in the same general area and the herdsmen were quarreling with each other and so they finally decided to part company. Lot would go one way, Abram would go the other way. Now where were they when we have that famous picture in our minds of Abram and Lot standing there and Lot saying, I will choose the well-watered lands of the Jordan River Valley. And Abram decided to choose the lands down here while well, he ended up at Hebron. Where were they when they did that? Were they up here? Were they down here? Were they here? We, we don't know where they were. The typical picture is that they were somewhere over here and they could look down on maybe the oasis at Jericho and, and the well-watered valley here. But where Lot ends up living is clear down at the southern end of the Dead Sea. So we wonder, were they down here somewhere looking this way? If you look at this area today, you think, why would anybody want that? You know, it's, it's pretty barren and arid down in here. But in the day we're talking about, all of this world was wetter than it is now. 4,000 years ago, this whole part of the world was wetter than it is now. In fact, much of the Sahara Desert was actually a Sudan, um, a savanna. And we know that because there are artistic wall drawings in caves in the mountains out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, known as the Ahagar Mountains, which are in southern Algeria, where people are portraying all kinds of animals that don't live within thousands of miles of this cave or these caves. And so the whole area was more savanna-like at that particular time. And there are still some residual trees out there in the Ahagar Range can't show you because I don't have a map of Africa here. Right about there. In the Ahagar range today, there are still are trees, residual trees in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Every tree has a plaque on it with a number. There are about 170 of them. And to cut one down is to forfeit your life because that's all there are left over from when this was a wetter time. So it's very possible that this whole area, in fact, all of this land was much greener and more prosperous than it is now. Because anybody were to say to you, well, I'm going to Israel, the land of milk and honey, you'd say, yeah, right, milk and honey. We, we don't picture it that way. Particularly if you can go back to the pre-Zionist period, back in the 19th century when the whole area was ruled by the Turks, 
and the Arabs had been living on the land for thousands, well, for you know, hundreds of years, and basically ripping it off and, and making it into a place of poverty. No input, just all extraction uh, from the land. Israel, of course, the, the Jews have attempted to put back in and develop drip irrigation and all the things that are making the desert bloom a little bit more like a rose. Well, Lot chose the southern area, the, the valley, which is over a thousand feet below <laughs> sea level. Abram chose to live here at Hebron, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. And there he built an altar and he bought the first piece of land that any Hebrew would ever own in the promised land. And that was the field in which was the cave of Machpelah, which would become the tomb of the patriarchs. It is at Hebron that Abraham is first called a Hebrew, H-E-B-R-E-W. And the argument goes on, Dr. Walmer could tell you more about it than I could, of why they were called Hebrews, or where in the world does this word Hebrew come from? The traditional view has been that it came from Eber, who was the great-grandson of Shem. But why Eber, you know, of all the possible people to be the source of that? Other scholars more recently believe that etymologically the word derives from the idea of from the other side, from the other side, with Jordan being the dividing line, so that they came from the other side. Of course, Abram came down this way. And Jacob, once he had migrated up there, would come down this way. You know, and, and even Isaac came down. So that they were called the people from the other side, the Hebrews. And of course, then there's all this historical stuff about haparu and other terms that have shown up in ancient literature, meaning wanderers. We don't really know the source of the word Hebrew, but we do know that it was at Hebron that Abram is first called in Scripture a Hebrew. Over, the de over a decade passed, had passed, since he had followed God into Canaan, and he started thinking about his posterity. Oh, God, here I am, me, myself, and I, and oh, yes, Sarai, the two of us, los dos. Hmm. That's not going to lead to much heritage. And so at that point, God spoke to Abram in a vision and promised him an heir. In fact, he promised him that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Well, you know, if the sky is pretty clear and you've got pretty good eyes, uh, you can see quite a few stars. And, you know, that's quite a few descendants. But then he says, that's the sand on the seashore. Well, I don't know. You know I've never tried counting that. Uh, that's a lot. It, it's just an expression, of course. It was then that God placed his imprimatur upon Abram with these words recorded in Genesis 15. Then he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And so we have the first clear statement of Scripture as to the role of faith and belief. To believe God, to have faith in God, God then imputes righteousness as a result. And of course, that will ultimately come to culmination in Christ, in whom we place our faith and we receive from Him forgiveness and righteousness. And then God swore a covenant to Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt 
See right, this right here, it says, Brook of Egypt. Well, um, many think that that's probably what was referred to, not the Nile. Because Israel is never controlled to the Nile. Oh, I shouldn't. Well, yeah, they've never controlled the Nile. They have controlled to the Suez Canal, but never to the Nile. And then to the river uh, Euphrates. Now, they have control to the Euphrates because under David and Solomon, the northern border of Israel did reach the Euphrates River in what is today Syria. And so from that point down to about here was to be the land of Canaan, was to be the land of promise, which means not only Canaan, but what would later become Philistia, Phoenicia, and a good portion of Syria. All of that was also spart supposed to be part of the promised land. When the promised heir failed to materialize quickly, we all know that Abram and Sarai thought that God should be moving a little more quickly than this, and maybe it was because he needed help. And so at 86 years of age, Abram fathered a son by Hagar, an Egyptian made of Sarai or Sarai. And of course his name was Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. Here's the son. God is up there saying, you numbskull. That's not what I said. What's interesting is although that Ishmael is not the promised son, God does not say so for 13 years. Talk about patience. Huh? Patience. Is God patient with us or what? Just think if God really laid to us every time we goofed. We'd be a total bruised mess all the time. Not able to get out of bed. Patient, patient, patient. Then in a two-phase appearance, God first established an everlasting covenant with Abram, which was to be sealed with the sign of circumcision, the Abrahamic covenant. And that time God said, you are no longer Abram, exalted father, which was a good name, but now you are Abraham, father of a multitude. Abram thought, probably thought, oh, you must be kidding, God. He changed Abram's, Abraham's wife's name, not much, from Sarai or Sarai, which meant princely, to Sarah, which meant princess. Uh, since she was to be the mother of this great nation, she was, her name was just slightly altered to Sarah which is easier to say, for one thing. Then in the second phase of this theophany, God promised that you will have a son by Sarah, not by some stand-in. No surrogate here. And amazingly, at a 100 years of age and Sarah at 90, Isaac was born. No wonder he was called laughter. In the years that followed, jealousy and strife would break out between Ishmael and Isaac to the point at which eventually Abraham was forced to banish Ishmael and Hagar away from the family, and that strife has not ceased to this day. Hasn't ceased to this day. Can you imagine what one little modification of God's will can do? and how its ramifications could carry on for 4,000 years. According to the teachings of Islam, and you've heard it so well from Dr. Cindy Strong, Ishmael, God hears, 
was the son of promise, not Isaac. Therefore, Muslims believe that Islam is the true faith of Abraham. And one of the uh, scenarios is, is that Abraham and Ishmael actually built the, the Kaaba, the black cube there, in, uh, or at least rebuilt it, because some believe that it was originally built by, by Adam you know, to worship Allah. And then it was at least rebuilt by Abraham and Ishmael. And therefore, Judaism is a perverted heresy. Well, Abraham's nephew Lot also played a significant role in the history of Israel, but in a very negative way. Although he was a herdsman, he was drawn by the glamour of Sodom. Here were the flashing lights and all. Obviously, there were no flashing lights in those days, but, the, but, but you know, whatever the allure of Sodom was, of, of settled life, this has been true throughout history. Why is it that the nomads have almost always been raiders? Primarily because they look in at the settled life, and even though they don't want to live in that kind of constriction, they like the open plains and the freedom to move, they like some of the stuff that settled people have. And so he decides eventually to move to where it was happening, Sodom. So do you ever think about how it was Lot made a living? He must have had hired shepherds still keeping his flocks out there somewhere and sending the cash in, you know, so he could live, so to speak, to live in the glamorous city of Sodom. And we all know the story that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three uh, associated cities, that Sodom and his, I mean, uh, Lot and his two daughters were rescued, whereas his two sons-in-law, married to his two daughters, as well as his wife, were destroyed in the Holocaust. And then they went and lived in caves. And while they were up there living in caves, they dis the women, the two daughters, despaired of ever having a husband, and they thought, oh no, our, our father Lot will have no, no heritage, and therefore we... Uh, you see what happens when people plan? Instead of seeking God's guidance, they decide the only way he's going to have a heritage is, is for us to commit incest. And so they each, as you know, uh, laid with their father after they got him drunk, and uh, children were born. Was this the will of God? Hardly. Look at the 19th chapter of Genesis, verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Does that ring a bell? He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day both the Ammonites and the Moabites, rejected the God of Lot, the God of Abraham, and pursued the pagan gods of the Canaanites. So one of the lessons that we get so clearly, even out of this brief look this morning, is do it God's way. Because if we do it our way, we make a huge mess, a mess that can have lasting consequences and as we're going to see, it would, be the, it would be the great men, supposedly the men of God like Abraham and Lot and Jacob, that would produce their own enemies. <laughs> and Israel will be dealing with those enemies to this very day. Well, we'll have to... Uh...
Pick up some more. Yeah. It seems to be so explicit in Scripture, doesn't it? Thank you.